Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Actung, actung, we have ways of making you talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And James, we are joined by a very, very special guest today. Uh, yes, a, a particularly special guest. Uh, a, an absolutely remarkable man. A, a man who lost all his family in the Holocaust, who survived the most terrible cruelty, privations, then became uh, a post-war Nazi hunter. Mm. And... Uh, Joseph, it's a real privilege to have you join us today. So thank you so much for finding the time. I, your your book is absolutely remarkable. Known, it's called The Survivor, and it's an astonishing memoir. I mean, really is. It, it's uh, we know about the Holocaust. We've read about the Holocaust. We've, of course, all watched Schindler's List. Um, but to read your memoir, which is so so frank, so stark, so harrowing. Um, it's 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 extraordinary. So thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. And I suppose really to start off with, I think one of the things that you chart so well and and, and write about so so brilliantly is this transition from a really pretty happy childhood, very happy childhood, peaceful childhood, and it's that transition from having that safe security of your family, your parents, your siblings, cousins, uncles, aunts, and having everything you know just ripped away from you. And that that transition is so stark and so brutal, isn't it? Yes. For those who don't know, who haven't read the book, I mean, you grew up in Poland, you had a large family, you, you alternated between living in the countryside and living in part of Krakow. I mean, can you just talk to us a little bit about about that transition? You know, the, the the thunder clouds rolling in to how the war kind of overtook your life. From a happy child to a suffering world. Yes. Okay. So, if she, as you know, that the Nazis invaded Poland, we were very worried when we heard what happened in Germany to the Jewish people how they were treated. Slowly, slowly, the thing became bad and worse. And then we got a lot of Jewish people that called the Ostjuden, the ones that uh, before immigrated to Germany, so the Nazis 
expose them and they came back to Poland like naked and barefoot without anything. There was appeals to bring them in. So we already smelled the rat. We already thought that things are bad. The Polish government tried to assure us, don't worry, you're not in Germany. We, you are in Poland, we'll protect you. You know how much they protected us. My father was mobilized to the army, <laughs> got a uniform and a rifle. He hardly put it on and he gave it back because the Nazis were already in. They came into Poland like you would walk in from one room to the other room in your house. So that all the Polish assurance was nothing. And when the Nazis came in the first, the first few weeks, maybe two, three months, was okay, was shortages. I used to lie down on a sidewalk near a bakery. Close. I went in the afternoon, took a blanket, lie down, the whole night sleeping, wrapped in that blanket in order in the morning to get a piece of a loaf of bread. And when I looked at the line, it was maybe a mile long behind me. And, some, and sometimes I was lucky, sleeping the whole night on the sidewalk. And in the morning when they started the sale, occasionally I was lucky. And sometimes the Nazis came uh, with a truck and they took all, all the bread. And there was nothing for the people. And then we were taking to slave labor, to, to, to forced labor. So we're working at day, daytime at night, we came back. Occasionally, they took people, they asked, the, they were, they've created a Judenrat, means a, a Jewish committee, and the Judenrat created a, a, a Ordnungsdienst, police, Jewish police. And they were helping the Nazis, because the Nazis were strangers in Poland. They needed help, local help. So what do they, they had the Polish police and they had also the Jewish police and they gave them orders to, we need 300 Jews. We need 200 Jews. They took them, we never saw them again. So they, was, they started to get bad and bad and worse. And then they took the parents, we never, never heard from them again. So there were a lot of children, they started to hide, hide the children, put them in churches, put them in, in monasteries, put them in orphanages, put them in private homes, put them in stables in the villages where they were where the animals, just, just to save them, that the people should pick them up. And, and I, don't, I don't go in stages, but that was one of the jobs that I did after the war. And that was my pride more than Nazi hunting. Why? Saving the children. Uh, but but Joseph, I mean, tell me. I mean, yeah. one of the one of the one of the terrible things that really stuck with me was what happened to your uncle and aunt and your cousin. Yes, we were all taken. We were running from places to places because we were living in Krakow, in the heart of the Jewish Krakow, and that heart of the Jewish Krakow became unbearable. The Nazis were patrolling there day and night in order to harass us. They started, you know, noticeable Jews, they started to cut the beard, a half a beard. They used to cut the long coats. They looked to the, 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 the pay it, what they call the, the side lock. It, it became very, very hard to live there. We couldn't go out, we couldn't go in. 
So there was an uncle in a town called Novimiasto uh, that was a, a sister of my father. So he said, come to us. We took a boat at night, closed the light. It was very dangerous. We we went on that boat during the night. We came to that uh, town. Uh, he said that's quiet. But because by asked, it wasn't quiet anymore. So we went there. We stayed there for a few weeks. My father went out to look for something to food, to, for, to buy in the, the market. He was beaten up by an assessment. We said that's not quiet anymore. So we went to another place called Zaloshit. Zalshit was about 18,000 Jews. And in um, one day they surrounded, we worked there for a while on forced labor. And then they sieged that town, that city or whatever call it. Um, and, and nobody in, nobody out, and all kind of orders with dogs and with reflectors of, at night with trucks, screaming, yelling, shooting, whatever, whatever, terrorizing us. Ordering in the morning at six o'clock, you should all be on the marketplace and you're allowed to take 10 kilos. So the whole night was packing the whatever the best, whatever. I was a young boy. I didn't know much. I was 13 years old. Packing, everybody had 10 kilos. And in the morning, six o'clock, everybody was sitting on the marketplace. Nobody moved. After in the afternoon, they were loading the train, the whole the, the, the whole thing, but there was more people than the train could take. So they took us to they took with trucks. They sent us to another town called Miechuf. And there we took they put us on a big, big field. On that a field grass sitting there. So we sat there the whole afternoon. And the night came, and we sit the whole night, and it started to get chilly, cold. And then the the the, the ground we were sitting was moist, and every time more moist. Every time we already feel water. The end of the story was sitting a whole night till the waist in water. My father knew the the story, what that meant. A lot of people didn't know. My father was a milner, and we had a, a flour mill, so he knew that they opened a dump there and they flooded us. And so it was sitting on that place a whole afternoon and a whole night and a whole morning till about the other afternoon, after uh, early afternoon. Everybody lines up, everybody lines up. So we lined up. My whole family was together. We lined up. At the end of the line, there was one assessment with a whip and there were two assessments in the side. When he pointed to the right, the other assessment pushed you to the right. And when he pointed to the left, the other assessment pushed you to the left. We, we did not know what the right and what the left. My mother and my sibling and uncles and aunts and grandparents and cousins, everybody to the right, everybody to the right. I didn't have a chance to kiss my mother goodbye. I didn't know where she's going. I didn't know... We didn't know anything. You know one thing that, that breaks my heart today? That we gave our 10 kilos to my mother to carry. Where did she carry it? To Belgium, to the gas chambers. Carrying three little children, my little brothers, and all those bags. It's just so unspeakably cruel. Yeah. How, how Joseph, how old were you um, when this 13. happened? 13. You were 13. Yeah. And Gosh. you stuck with your father, didn't you? You stayed with your father. Yes. You know, a 13-year boy in those times was very naive. I was very naive. 
I didn't know much. You know, uh, I, I when I grew up, there was no electricity. When I was a little boy, there was no electricity. Then came electricity. It was something special. Yeah. One thing we saw a car. The first time a car we saw. Oh my God! How could it be? No horses. No. You know. I remember when the first plane came to Poland. There was parties all over. The president <laughs> came. The president Maszczynski, Tadeusz Maszczynski, came to Poland, and all the the, the big people, the mayor, you now celebrating the, the, the even the rabbi, the chief rabbi was there speaking in Yiddish. What a miracle! A, a bird that is made out of flesh and, and loud flies, but this is of metal. How anyway? <laughs> so we were very naive. It was not like today, a thirteen-year-old that he already has TV and radios <laughs> and telephones. In our in my time, you had to tell somebody something. You had to go and tell him. Yeah. Today, uh, you, you give him a call. It's a different world. But we were very naive. I was thirteen years old. And you're with your father, and you have no idea what's going to happen to you. But you're, but you're then. You then become laborers, don't you? Forced laborers. As I said, all this, the the the, the from the eighteen thousand, like seventeen thousand two hundred fifty, they sent to the right, and seven hundred fifty to the left. My father, myself, we were the, among the seven hundred fifty. And what does it mean to right and left? The right was to to die in the gas chambers in Belgium. And the left was for 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 labor. Uh, the guy, the guy in the middle on all those lines, the guy in the middle played the role of God. He decided who's going yeah. to live and who's going to die. So we went. We sent to to different camps. The first one was to in swamps to put in the big uh, rows and put in pipes. Later on, we were sent to a, a Jewish cemetery called Yerzolimska, and they came with big, big, big earth movers, destroyed the cemetery, and on the, flattened it out. I went, went with a shovel in the behind those those earth movers and collected the remains, the bones, and the skull, put them on a, on a wheelbarrow. On my left side, there was a guy with a wheelbarrow. There were a lot of those, but the, I'm telling you what I did. And put those, those remains, and those remains were put all to the garbage. So you helped make the, the camp you were then incarcerated in? So they were flattened out the land, and we built barracks there. I was... Uh, Burning the bar the barracks, the, the 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 manual labor, they were engineers. How they uh, uh, planned the whole thing, and we built a plashuk, a concentration camp, and it was started all kind of works until it came the commandant Amon Get. That was it's was unlivable. Yeah, it's 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 some of the most harrowing parts of your memoir are uh, 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 the descriptions of his just appalling cruelty randomly shooting people I mean, you mentioned that he sniped you know he had a rifle with a with a scope on and he and he shot a, a young woman with a baby in her arms that's what you'd know and i know a lot more yeah he, he in front two lines in front of me there was a man called shlomo spielman and he passes by and he said step out so he steps out takes out his revolver and says like this 
I cannot take it at you looking so handsome. You don't need more. Dear God. Here you got the whole picture of that animal. The animal is an honor to call him. Yes. I, Joseph, would you say that you encountered true evil in, in, in his form? Evil is also a very, very light expression. Right. I, okay. I don't know any other how to how to describe evil. Yeah. But 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 Joseph, describe it because there's a moment where you have a really terrifying encounter with Gert, when you're dismantling a, a a brick wall, and with a young guy. In his mind, I was dead. In his mind, I was dead. So so just tell that that if you don't mind, can you tell that encounter because it's. It's extraordinary. The, the, the encounter was as follows. I, I had to dismantle some big columns that hold the, the German army needed iron. And that Jewish cemetery had tremendous fences, big, big iron bars. And those bars couldn't stand without those big, big um, uh, columns of uh, so uh, from both sides. So they put me up there to chop down the bricks. And the order was, don't break them, break, take them out and, 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 and complete. So he passes by once. And when I chopped it up, I throw it down to somebody. And somebody kept, kept it and uh, piled it up. So one day he passes by. You know, when he came close, you would, could not work, be normal. Because you were shivering, you were shaking, because you never knew what might happen. So I threw down that brick, and the guy didn't catch it. So I said, come here, come here, come on. It was a little bit uh, like a few feet uh, distant. So he comes down, take out his revolver, shoots him. And he comes out uh, over to me, and he said, throw it down to me. I chop it down. He did. I don't know whether he specially didn't catch it or he or he couldn't catch it. It was not so hard to catch it. And he called me down. I had to go down from that high column. And my hands were bloody. My knees were full of blood. And I come down there and he Cause started... Because you, you slid down it, didn't you? You were sliding down the column. Yeah, I had to slide down. I could only come down when I chopped down everything, you know. And, uh, then I am on the floor, on the, on the ground floor. Anyway. I come down and I see him like moving his gun and that was it. I don't know anything more. I walk up in the in the hospital and I look at my body and everything hurts me. The back and the front and I tried touching. I was always bandages all tied. I, I didn't know what happened to me. I could not. I was blocked totally. My mind was told. I didn't know what I got five days now out of work after when I came out of the hospital. I don't know how long I was there, and I don't know, and I don't know if they do any experiences, if they took any samples from me or something. I don't know. But it was it was Vilek Chilovich, wasn't it, who saved you? Chilovich, yeah. Okay, that was. So I came to that story. So. I was a, a little boy in Hungary, and I had the courage to go to that chief of the Jewish police, Hilevich, and I asked him, because I knew that they had a little bit more to eat than I than we have. So I, I had a good idea, and I said to him, I'll polish your boots, they were dirty. I will polish your boots, they'll shine like the sun. 
So I said, okay, come in the morning before the siren. So I used to come to him a few times a week, twice a week, sometimes once a week. And he always gave me gave me something, a little, whatever he gave me, a little nothing, a little soup, a little a bread, a bone, a, whatever was gold, you know, gold you cannot eat. That was, that. anyway, so he knew me. And when I felt a little better after the hospital, for a few days later, uh, I, I, how did I know that I felt better? Because I got hungry. When I got hungry, I said, oh, let me go to him to get something to eat. So I knocked at the door. And as he sees me coming in, he said, oh, you're alive. Like this, just like that. Oh, you're alive. I look at him. Yeah, yes, I'm alive. Yeah, I'm alive. I'm alive. Do you know who saved your life? I looked at him. I don't know what he's talking. Do you remember the day you came down from the column? Do you remember he take out the gun? You know, I started beating you. You fainted. And I called, hey, two, two guys. And I told him, save your bullet. He's dead. And I called, hey, guys, come here. Carry him to the crematorium. And the two guys, when they picked me up, they see that I'm not dead. I'm breathing or something. Instead of taking me to the crematorium, they took me. He was away already. He was gone. He was gone. He was how happy already that I was dead. Because Hilevich told him, save your bullet. He's dead. And he called the guys, take him to the, the crematorium. So that was the story that he reminded me that he saved my life. But he didn't save his life. <laughs> Get shot him at the end. Hilevich. Yeah because he knew too much wow we need to take a break right now we'll see you in a tick two guys drove to work neither guy wore a seatbelt one guy got a ticket one guy didn't the same two guys drove home one guy wore a seatbelt one guy didn't one guy made it home the guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. But then you got seconded to working in on a, in a Heinkel factory, didn't you? Oh, you mean making tunnels to hide munition? And to hide uh, 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 all kind of um, uh, yeah, all kind of weaponries. You mean that to the end? Oh, uh, I, I didn't mean that, end. but it doesn't matter. But, but tell us about that. That'd be great. In the Alp Mountains, we dig tunnels and we made shelves to storage all those weaponries. There, where I was working, yes. Gosh. Um, that was at the end of the, uh, but we, I, we were we were talking at the beginning here, Plaju. Yeah. Then they then they divided us, my father and myself. Yeah. They sent me to Auschwitz, and they sent I don't know where they sent him. I only got after the war a death certificate from Flossenburg the concentration camp right. with a date when he died. So I have a date when he died. And and, and, and but but at one point you you. You did escape, didn't you, overnight when you were working in the salt mines? I did. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, that was a very opportune moment. Uh, so I took the opportunity and I figured, let me, let me, let me get out. And I did. 
I hide that during the day in a cornfield, not far from the, just close to that factory. Because you were working in a salt mine, weren't you? So there weren't salt many mine, guys. Vialichka. Vialichka was a famous place for people. People came to visit because there is a church, a beautiful church made out of salt yep. in the salt mine. A very, very artistic place. People came to admire it from all over. So I was working there on chopping um, salt and putting in our wagons on our tracks and then on the elevator coming up there. And then the, the salt was loaded on, on trucks and taken away. Uh, one day I came up there. Downstairs there were a few assessments, three or four. And upstairs there were also like two or something or one or something. And I came up one day with it sold, and I look around everywhere, and I don't see anybody. And I go to the door, to the gate where it is, and I look around outside, inside, nobody there. <laughs> so I figured it's a good time. Let me run. Let me go. I Then I noticed him lying somewhere in a corner on, on somebody. I, I don't know what they did there, but anyways... Um, so I, were, I ran and I hid in that um, cornfield. When it came night, I got up. I heard the people leaving they, from this work. I heard them um, walking. I was lying there and at night when it got dark, nobody was around. I got up and I was walking, 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 walking. And I saw light somewhere. I locked at the door and I, I, I said, give me something. They slammed the door in my face. I figured some people will have pity on me. A little boy uh, come in and uh, take a shower, whatever. The, uh, take a little soup. Uh, we'll put you on some clothes because I was dirty all the um, No, I, I went to two, three, four places and no, nobody had would let me in. Either they were afraid or they was they didn't want to. I don't I don't know. I, I don't go into the to, to philosophy about that. So I was in big trouble and I didn't know what to do. I got I came back and during the night to that field close to the, the salt mine, very close to the entrance. And I was lying there and hoping them that I will I, uh, like smuggle myself into the group. And I was waiting and I was li lying low and looking on the boots, on the shoes. When I saw boots, so I saw that the, the, the SS was already over. When he passed, then I ran in and, 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 and um, joined the group and came back to the salt mine, working there again. Yeah, it was a very, it was, the, the, the coming back was even more risky than the, the running away. <laughs> but yeah. That was it. I, I just to, just to wrap up what happened with with Amon Gerd at the end of the war. You survived Auschwitz. You survived Ebensee, Matthausen. You survived them all. A, a, a miracle, frankly, but you did. Combination yes. of luck and fate and all sorts of things. Uh, and then you were picked up by the Americans, weren't you? And 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 asked to help them track down people at, at Dachau. I became a policeman in a DP camp in in Austria in Bad Ischl. And out of there, I approached the American Occupation Army 
after the war because I was in the American zone and I said I have a list six Nazis I won't go after them. I don't want to to find them. They were big murderers. They were I was in their camp and I got permission. I got a uniform, got papers and I started working. And I had a friend with me and I was going to to the village where he comes from. I talked to neighbors. I interrogated family. I inter interrogated friends. I interrogated enemies. There's a lot of enemies. Those Nazis had a lot of enemies in Germany. <laughs> yeah. Why? Because yeah. they were jealous on them. They had everything. Hitler gave them everything. Poisoned their mind, brush, uh, washed their brains, and gave them everything that they... So the neighbors became jealous. So I got information, a lead after a lead after a lead. Finally, I caught him. He was disguised. He wanted to be under the origin uh, uh, the, the normal Wehrmacht, means the army, the German army, and he hide hi there in Dachau. And so this I, is Amon Gert. This is we're talking about Amon Gert. Amon Gert, and I was talking to to the officers there to see if all the people that are around them, if they are his people, everybody, yes, 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 I was there for a few weeks. One day I go to some of the generals there and I said, is all your division, all command? Yes, yes, yes. And somebody said, we have somebody that we don't know well. He's with us for a while, but we don't know him. So where is he? Who is he? Uh, they don't know. They had, they had a, a name, some sort, but it didn't didn't sound familiar at all. Where is he? Over there on the corner somewhere. So I went there on the corner, and as I approached him, my blood was boiling in me. I recognized the murderer's face. It was half of his size that it used to be. He was big, big, riding on a horse, too big a dog. Yes, because he was six foot four, wasn't he? He was huge. Big, big, huge. Anyway, half the size skinny, dressed and clothed like a beggar, lying on the floor like a dog. I approached him and I started kicking him. Get up, you dog. You I called him names that he used to call us. I spit in his face. I punched him. I kicked him. I did. I, I, one thing I didn't want to do, shoot him. That would be too easy. That would be like giving him a medal for his for his terrible behavior, for his, for his murderous behavior. And he got the name, the Butcher of Plasher. Anyway, I did what I could. I got him up from the floor. And then I put him into a little, I, 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 said, I said to the command whom, whom I got here, I explained them. I was reprimanded for hitting. They said, you're not allowed to hit. And I said, forget about the hitting. You would, you would, you would do more than I did. Um, anyway, put him in a little cell in a Landsberg jail. I went into that jail a few times, and one day I changed my. I used to beat him, beat him, beat him. He wouldn't open his mouth. Nothing, nothing. His hands were on the back. Nothing. Not not handcuffed. Just like that. But one day I decided I'll change my tactic. I went on there on a little bench and I sat with him and I put my hand 
all around his shoulder and I said, Aman, tell me, why did you do all those things? Why did you kill Mr. Spielman? Why did you hang Mr. Forgot any names and things. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? You, you know, nobody asked you to do it. Why did you? You know, if you would be a nice man, you know, you would be dressed in gold. People would carry you on a golden platter, not on silver. You would be a multimillionaire. You would be popular all the world. Now, now where are you going to? I. Why did I do that? I wanted to test that murderous being. Maybe there is a touch of remorse and there wasn't no, no. i was i was convinced that he would do it again hmm. this is uh, uh joseph yeah how i mean list, listening to you describe this and talk about it you're you're, you're a really young man you've been essentially as, as far as i can say i mean you said evil doesn't do isn't enough of a word you've encountered all this how do you then go on with life i mean how do you how do you pick yourself up and move forward what what, what does what what does a man do you know what I'll, I'll tell you something i was a single only one survivor from so many mm. none even a distant family a this anybody nobody i was trying to talk to somebody i couldn't find anybody to talk but you know what finally i found somebody to talk to me and I said, Joseph, you survived all that troubles. There must be a purpose in your survival. And I started doing things. And I started doing with those children. That was something. You know, everybody talks about the Nazi hunting. Nazi hunting, I had to do it. They had to face justice. They had to pay their prize. What, what prize did they pay? Nothing. They paid one, one body was hanged. So each of those murderers had thousands on their conscience. But what? You cannot kill him twice, right? No. So he paid for it with his life for, for thousands. And that is finished. There's no trash left of him. He is gone, finished, forgetting. Yeah. You cannot do no more. My pride is to save those children, to bring life. There was death, you know, death finished. But life to bring. I have seen some statistics. Those 600 children that they, they were shipped from Trieste, from Italy, to Palestine. There were no yep. Jewish state at the time yet. And they came into the, the harbor in Haifa, the British uh, mandate sent them, they rerouted them to Cyprus. Mm. They eventually came back to Israel when Israel became a state. And I have seen some statistics like three, four thousand out of those. That is something that I'm proud, proud of, creating life. Yeah, so you should if be. You save one life is, is a big thing, you know, mm. saving so many children, grandchildren, great grandchildren, family. Life, that is my pride. The other things, they had to pay justice. Julius Ludolf, uh, the Hans, the, I forgot all those names, Miller. I got them, thanks God, all, they paid their price. Brought them to justice, brought witnesses, did everything possible. Yeah, 
so Joseph, when you when you write a memoir uh, of these experiences, are you, are you you're making sure that it's recorded? But what do you want people? What do you want people to to take from your life? Because you, you know you, you say uh, to to save one life's an, a powerful thing, and you save thousands of lives. What what do you want people to to, to take from the memoir? I want people. You know that popular saying that is all over the world around, never again, never again, mm. never again. You heard that, yeah? Yeah. So, to me, never again is an empty shell. It's the last words. It means nothing. What do you do towards never again? That is the question. What do you do? We have to tell the story. We have to tell people what happened. Why? In order it should not happen again. Antisemitism is so abundant now, so much everywhere. And America used to be the golden, the golden state, the golden country. It's not anymore golden. It's not even silver. It is, I don't know. Anti-Semitism everywhere. Mm. The feeling is very bad, very tense. Like in the 30s, I was a child at the time, but I remember the the feeling. So in order, you know, from anti from from anti-Semitism became becomes evil doers and deniers of the Holocaust. You know, this Holocaust is so well documented all over the world, everywhere. How could people, evil people, come around and deny that it never happened? But our mission, what we have to learn from all that is fight anti-Semitism. Don't let the, the evil continue growing and, and, and tell the story that it should never happen again. Yes. Well, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And um, here, here, and and what a what a remarkable book it is. I mean, yours is an absolutely astonishing story. Um, thank you so very much yes. for for coming on and talking to us. It's been absolutely very welcome, very welcome, and hopefully our talking and our discussion and our teaching will have will, will reach some some positive ears. Yeah, well, that it should that's never happen. Such a thing. That Holocaust was unique in the world. Never ever in the history of the world was such a thing that such an evil man like Hitler that came from nowhere and, and made a terrible tragedy and disappeared to nowhere. And on his track, he he, he just made that. It's all, we we cry about six million Jews. But you know that there was over 50 million people that lost their lives in World War II. And we we, we do everything possible, talking and teaching, that it should never happen again. Not empty word. That should never happen again. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you so much for talking to Uh, us. And I should just say that the book is called The Survivor by Joseph Lefkovich. And um, it's, it's 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 a... it's a difficult read, but it's a it's an incredibly beautifully written and profoundly moving read. And I would urge everyone to rush out and get a copy and read it. It's really important stuff. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very Joseph. much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Bye-bye.